Um, okay, first of all, I wanted to pray. So, um, dear Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this wonderful faith community. And I just pray that um, you show up here today. Um, make the story about you and about me. Tell my story, but um, I hope that um, the truth of, of what you've done in my life has shown you through here today. So I lift this up in your glorious name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm going to do in this sermon is, uh, you still, okay. So I, I just have to say, I have a newfound respect for people who do sermons. <laughs> it's really not easy. I've been like trying to write the sermon for two weeks and I was still writing it at like three o'clock in the morning. I didn't actually sleep. <laughs> and, um, and it's still completely incoherent. So what I'm going to endeavor to do is um, just tell my personal story. I started out writing something called uh, how to do a pandemic lessons from the AIDS epidemic. That wasn't totally, that was actually based on Connie's brilliant idea to go see the AIDS felt. Um, and, uh, but that wasn't totally coming together. And then um, Jeannie suggested that I preach on um, liberating spirituality. So when I was praying about that, God dropped um, into my spirit that I should preach about how Jesus Christ has liberated me is liberating me and will liberate me. And uh, then it was kind of interesting how this week, like each person I talked to, or not every single, but like added a little thing to my my sermon, whether you know intentionally or not. So that was kind of cool. Um, so the structure, so, and then the point is, I'm gonna tell my personal story and then tie it in to what Jesus has done into my, in my life. And hopefully I won't take too long. And then we can get back to the wonderful music and stuff. Um, so the structure of the sermon, uh, which I got from my mother <laughs> based on a book that she read by Catherine Schultz, who won a Pulitzer, uh, called Lost and Found. So the structure is loss, found, and. Loss is, you know, the people and places that I have lost. Um, over the years, especially when I was a young person. And of course, every life is filled and characterized and marked by loss. Uh, found is the times that I found my community, my people, a sense of belonging. And of course, most importantly, when I found Jesus and Jesus found me. And then the and part is that God is not finished with me yet. <clears throat> God is still working in my life. And uh, so that's what I am. Um, so as I was praying about this this week, um, the scripture, John 3.16 came to me, um, which is of course a very famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And then the other verse that came to me was God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, and it's funny because I thought really God, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of John 3.16. I love the first half of it. I love the first half of it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I do believe that. 
And I believe that he died for us and for the forgiveness of sins, my sins, as it says in Romans. But I don't really love the part where it says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. I mean, I like that, but I don't like the implication that people who don't believe in him will perish and won't have eternal life. <clears throat> and for me, that isn't actually consistent with what I know of God's character. So anyway, I'm going to tell my story here, and I'm going to talk about how that ties into John 3.16. Um, and I, I apologize, because I'm a little bit disorganized here. That's some notes. Um, so anyway, I wanted to share my own few moments in my personal story. So I grew up in San Francisco. My parents were atheists. Um, they're political progressives. Uh, we sort of moved a lot, mostly around San Francisco and Air Bay Area in California. Moved to LA for a while. Um, my parents got divorced, and then after that, um, my mom moved into a house in the backyard of another house in the Castro district of San Francisco, and we lived behind. Um, a man named Don, a gay man. And my mom became, you know, we became great friends with him. And uh, soon my mom's, you know, single mom friends became friends with his friend group of gay men. And they would have these great parties, I remember. Um, and then later, we moved out of that house and Don moved out of his house and we moved into another big house together. So we were housemates with Don. And uh, we became friends with his boyfriend, Mark, and anyway, uh, and they became kind of part of our family. <clears throat> and I remember one day sitting, I've told this story before, so I hope I'm not boring you. Uh, I was sitting in our living room reading Newsweek, which my mom always subscribed to, and I was reading about a new disease called GRID, gay-related immune disease which I guess AIDS was called for one minute. <laughs> and um, I remember thinking how absurd, how can a, a disease be gay related? Uh, but what I didn't know yet was that our beloved friends were already infected with that disease, which would become known as HIV AIDS. And uh, during that time, so, you know, they were like these young guys, they seemed very healthy. <laughs> and they were for a while. Um, and uh, during that time, an ex-boyfriend of, of Don's named Timo moved in with us. He was a very sweet man, very soft-spoken, gentle guy, and I didn't realize it, but he moved in because he was becoming sick. He didn't seem sick. Um, <clears throat> so um, Don took care of him as he got sick and died. Uh, I just remember um, it was a large house with two stories, and at one point he sort of stopped coming downstairs. That's where he and Don lived upstairs. And my mom told me he was sick. And, you know, I didn't really think much of it. Um, but one day I came home from school, and uh, Don came and hugged me and told me that Tino had died. You know, I had no idea. He was not sick. Sorry. Anyway. Then later, um, we went to the suburbs for <laughs> reasons, and 
and uh, Don and Mark moved in together. But unfortunately, Don became sick and uh, he passed away. And then Mark actually was working that he benefited from the AIDS drugs that came online. And he lived for several more years. Um, and then he died of AIDS as well, eventually. Um, and sometimes it just makes you so sad, obviously, that they're gone. Because they were, you know, I think about it, it was actually sort of a brief period in some ways in a lifetime that we knew. But they're very important people to me and to us. And I feel like they would have been significant adults for my son. They would have helped me while my mom was sick, getting dementia and all that stuff. But I would not trade knowing them or even going through all that loss for anything. And in hindsight, I feel like I learned a lot about God and the character of Jesus through observing those men take care of each other. Because who takes care of their ex? Well, they're dying of a horrible disease, mysterious disease that you don't even know if you can get it or what. That's a piece ended. And lots of them, and you know, people during the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. So, anyway, that was one moment in my childhood that sort of was a loss, obviously, but did point me towards Jesus decades before I became a Christian. Um, so that was during my teenage years. And then another thing that happened during my teenage years is I became a communist. <laughs> so on a totally different note, transitioning to becoming a communist and an anti-racist. My uncle was a communist, my uncle was a communist, and I got involved in the Progressive Labor Party, which sounds like something really nice, but they were Stalinists. <laughs> I believed in violently overthrowing the government. Um, <clears throat> and I believed in some good things too. So it, there was an affiliated group called the International Committee Against Racism. And this was, it was kind of a youth group. So this was my youth group experience. It was not a Christian youth group. Um, the group was mostly, mostly working class kids of color. It was very diverse. It was very fun. You know, we would go, on kind of youth group things like go to this now or whatever. Um, but we had also had these conversations, discussions about economics and politics and racism, and we'd sell our communist newspapers and stuff. Oh, thank you. Um, and um, anyway, I remember I got invited by an adult friend from Progressive Labor Party to go to this anti police brutality rally. So I was like, sure. I showed up, it was on the steps of City Hall in San Francisco. It was it was actually led by by kids, by teenagers. And there were only like a dozen people there. They were all black, except for me and my friend. And um, they, you know, they were kind of making speeches on the, the steps of uh, City Hall. And they were talking about this thing that happened in their neighborhood where the police had come to arrest this one young guy and they started beating him up. And then this kid's mom came out to say, stop beating him up. And they, um, the police took this mom and like put her on the ground and started beating her up. 
So I just remember being astounded hearing that as a 13-year-old kind of middle-class white kid. I had no idea that this is what went on. So that was like this first moment of awakening, like kind of figuring, I'd already figured out that racism was bad, but figuring out the role of the police and enforcing the racism. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, I remember thinking about like, how horrible did that happen to someone's mom? And what if that happened to my mom? I knew that would never happen to her. Um, you know, so starting to understand a little bit about white privilege. Anyway, so that was me becoming a, a communist. And um, I guess the way that ties in to Jesus is, you know, I did have this hunger and thirst for righteousness as a, you know, teenager. Um, so later, I met Scott, uh, or in between, I became active with this group called Food Not Bombs, and uh, I became friends with my friend Hugh. So this is like the, the found, that was the found part when I became a, a communist and found my people here. So I became a, so I got active with Food Not Bombs, met Scott. Scott was actually an anarchist. I was a communist. We weren't sure if that was going to work out, but <laughs> compromise with each other. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, and I had this friend, Hugh, from Food Not Moms, and he was a great guy. I really loved Hugh. He was, he was one of my best friends. Uh, unfortunately, he did not have the best social skills, and he was sort of a communist in this anarchist organization, and he really liked to be a kind of fly in the ointment. So he became kind of socially isolated, depressed, and suicidal. And unfortunately, I really made a huge mistake because I did not realize, or I didn't know how to deal with him talking to me about his suicidal feelings. So I told him, don't talk to me about that. Well, just so you know, that is not what you're supposed to do. That's horrible. So I told him, don't talk to me like that. I mean, I did try to like give him things like, you should go to a homeopath and get, you know, treatment for your depression or whatever. Good stuff like that. But anyway, one day I arrived home. This is when I were preparing for a wedding and I had a package in the mail and that package had a suicide note for my friend. So there's another story of loss, sorry, trigger warning. And, um, Anyway, it's awful. Like there were three people in that this letter was addressed to me and two of his friends who I didn't know. Their phone numbers were all three of us. So I call these people, you know, because I try to call you. I call these people. These people totally blew it off. One of them was trying to plan like a, a book fair. The other one, I don't remember what they were doing, but they're like, oh, you know, we can't deal with this right now. But there I was, I had this information. You know, I obviously I can't remember what order it went looking at his apartment and I called the police. I remember when the police were coming over, we had all these like radical posters in the wall that I was Scott at the time. And there's this policeman beating somebody up in one of the posters. So we're like taking the posters off the wall and hiding them in the closet. So we just looked like normal. <laughs> we're trying to look like normal, you know, middle-class white people so we could make this report to the police. I remember reporting it to the police and it just told on me while they were taking this report, like they are not going to do anything. I thought I had these hopes, like, here's a picture of you. Look out for this vulnerable man. <laughs> you know, 
writing it down. They're going to put it in the, you know, circular file that trash in the corner. That's how it felt to me. And so, you know, of course, I reached out to female moms, people made flyers and tried to look around for them all over the place, different organizations. But he was very active in the, you know, homeless community. He was not homeless himself. But anyway, we never found Hugh. And I had this experience during that time uh, of having a dream. I was still asleep and I had a dream. And I dreamt that I drowned. And when I woke up, I thought I that that was Hugh. I can't remember. I think it might have said in his suicide note that he was going to try to. And you know, walked out of my room, down the hall. And then suddenly this presence like enveloped me in this sense of unconditional love. And I knew it was you, which was weird because he was not a presence of unconditional love at real time like, <laughs> when he was alive. But anyway, it was like this presence came up and hugged me and I said, goodbye you, I love you. And then I woke up because I guess actually that was part of the dream too. But I know for sure that he actually visited me. And in hindsight, so how does this tie in to my relationship with Jesus? Um, I realized, or I believe, that he became unconditional love. He was going to be with God. He was not, he was a communist. He was not a believer in any sense. I don't think he had been raised as a believer. And he was a very difficult person in some ways. He was also a great friend of mine. But I do believe that he was going to be with Jesus. And after he died, he was something bad, like he suicide. That's where you go. And you become a traditional love. That was something that God taught me through that experience. And anyway, um, the next chapter was um, coming faith. So that was that was a found moment. Um, a lot of people have heard my story of coming to faith, but you know, I went back to the adopted Attica after I married, got adopted Atticus, and um, I was teaching English as a second language and during that time, I was sharing a library. I was teaching in the library, and the librarian was a Christian. There was a couple of Christians in my class, and um, I don't know. I think they must have been praying for me because um, during that time, we were looking for a Buddhist community because they're Buddhist. And I started sharing with my students, "I'm looking for a church." And then this woman walks in, one of my coworkers, and I. Said to her, I'm looking for a church. Isn't that weird? I'm thinking of becoming a Christian. This thing is just like flying out of my mouth. This is like the Holy Spirit completely. Um, and she's like, Well, I'm a Christian. You should come to my church. It was just weird. Who says that in the Bay Area? So, <laughs> um, so we went to that church and we really liked it. They're all about social justice and they had a great children's minister. So, um, we started attending that church. They sang about the blood of Jesus. I was like, that's really weird. But that, um, 
that we, after we went to that service, I was meditating about the blood of Jesus because I was like, what's that all about? And I had this amazing experience of Jesus coming into the room and pouring forgiveness over me. And that was uh, my conversion experience. I was like, oh, this is real. I'm a Christian now. That's this crazy experience. Scott was still kind of an atheist at that point. But he was like, but I like the social justice piece of it. And then a couple months later, we were talking about it. I was like, well, what do you think about this, the whole Jesus part of it? It's like, I believe in it. And that was even more of a testimony for me. That was a miracle beyond what I had experienced. Because he was always such a you know, materialist or whatever. Anarchist guy. Um, so that was awesome. And we loved being Christians. I remember I was just like weeping every day, every time we went to church, waving. And, um, but unfortunately, so that church, their whole thing was they were an incarnational church and they lived in East Oakland and they were serving the poor. And so we were like, well, we're going to be incarnational, lived in East Oakland, and serve the poor. So we sold our house, we moved in and started renting rooms in this other family's house. And then, and only then <laughs> to figure out that this is like a non-affirming church. So there, these people that we were living with, probably people are saying all this, that was the, during the time of the uh, fight for marriage equality and all that, they started saying all this you know, stuff that I don't agree with. We didn't want Atticus to hear that stuff. And there we were living with them. <laughs> I have 10 minutes. Okay, I'm gonna wrap this up. Um, Anyway, so, and then the neighborhood was really difficult. Child prostitution, it was scary, you know. <laughs> All kinds of scary stuff happening in that neighborhood. And I remember getting, you know, I was trying to like call the police on the, the pimps. It's a child prostitution situation. And they, they at one point, these, these guys were following me. And I was like, we have to get out of this neighborhood. So I told Scott, I want to live in Rockridge, Montclair, or Piedmont. <laughs> so Scott goes on Craigslist and he immediately found us an apartment that we could afford, which was a miracle. This is totally God's provision in Montclair. <laughs> so we moved in a big hurry to Montclair. Um, anyway, another example of God's faithfulness. Um, and Okay, so what does all of this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with John's 316? Um, so I feel like the experience I've had as a believer and as a non-believer has shown me that God loves and takes care of non-believers too. It is just not consistent with what I know of God's character to punish people for not believing in Jesus. However, and, and I remember <laughs> this Buddhist teacher asked once, why does Jesus want everyone to sign his petition? Like you have to sign Jesus's petition and then he's gonna save you. Um, and I thought that was funny. But most of the people in this room, we have signed Jesus's petition. <laughs> we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. We call him Lord and we believe he is saving us. And so why do we do that? What's the difference between us and people who don't believe? Well, I'm going to talk about four differences that I've observed in my own life. 
first, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we start to live that eternal life. We have that eternal life now. We know that we're saved. And it's really quite simple in a way. We know that we will see our loved ones again. who passed away. So for this, this makes being separated from some of the most important people in my life bearable. Um, and I even got, God granted me a vision of my mother dancing in heaven with Jesus. And so my mourning has been turned to gladness. Second, as we grow in faith, we come to believe that nothing that we do can separate us from God's love. Um, that, that was what I got out of that experience with you. My experience of the suicide is that nothing, not suicide, hostility to the idea of religion, total non-belief can separate us from God's unconditional love. We will all experience that unconditional love and we will give it to other people. So knowing this can give us so much security and confidence. The creator of heaven and earth loves us that much. Third, we can look at our lives and start to see that God actually takes all the things and works them together for our good, right? And this allows us to take risks and be at peace with our mistakes. And it allows us to forgive ourselves and others for mistakes that we've made. And then finally, we know that we can pray and begin to see God answer our prayers. And as our faith grows, we can see God perform miracles. So I forgot to tell you about the miracle that God gave us this house in Redwood uh, Heights. But anyway, then I, I, I had not believed that I could get the house. But God created, God gave us this true miracle of a house for under one million dollars of graduate heights. Three bedrooms to that. It's only you guys. Y'all <laughs> So um that's what my experience has taught me about the nature of God. And I hope this has encouraged you. Um let's see before we go I, I wanted to read you this quote about living the eternal life right now. This is from a young adult novel called The Fault in Our Stars, which is about two teenagers who have cancer and they fall in love with each other. There is an infinite number between zero and one. There's 0.1 and 0.12. And there's 0.112 and an infinite collection of others. And of course, there's a bigger infinite set of numbers between zero and two, or between zero and a million. Some infinities are bigger than other infinities. There are days, many of them, when I've synthesized of my unbounded set. I want more numbers than I'm likely to get. And God, I want more numbers for Augustus Waters than he got. But Gus, my love, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for our little infinity. I wouldn't trade it for the world. You gave me it forever within the number of days, and I'm grateful. All right, that's all. <laughs>